Hey everybody, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Real Talk podcast. We hope that these discussions will inform and inspire you to engage in your own Real Talk. Today's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Trivan, builders of custom trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at www.trivan.com. A big thanks to them for making these conversations possible. Now, on to the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the Real Talk Podcast. I just wanted to record a brief introduction to this episode uh, to give you a little life update. Uh, My wife and I were recently blessed with the birth of a healthy baby girl, and we named her Stella Rose. Um, So she was born uh, early Saturday morning uh, to us, and I'm recording this on Tuesday, so uh, fairly recent. Um, So hopefully I don't seem too tired, but that's going to be a thing for the foreseeable future. Um. Yeah, everyone's happy and healthy. We're very thankful. And I uh, just wanted to give that update. Um, I know people have been uh, interested because um, since it's been mentioned a few times on the last few episodes. Um, so that is uh, quite a blessing. Uh, I also wanted to introduce this episode. I'm looking to start a bit of a series, I think, on uh, the marks of the true church. I've just been really interested in uh, understanding what makes a church true um, from, from those uh, marks. Um, so this episode is going to be the beginning of that, which is starting to, we're talking about preaching today. Uh, this, so this, uh, came out of a series that voice of the church put out, uh, with Dr. Cornelius Van Dam, who's my guest today. Um, he was speaking with, uh, Reverend Rokema and, uh, Dr. Bill DeYoung about preaching and what is a sermon. Um, so voice of the church put that out on YouTube, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, um, but recently, Reform Perspective has taken over the work of, of uh, Voice of the Church and has actually taken in their database of uh, devotionals or little sermonettes that they had uh, they have produced over many, many years in the past. Um, so I just wanted to let everyone know that there is a new podcast out uh, from Reform Perspective uh, called Mana, which is a daily bread, essentially. Um, so your morning devotional, um, it's a great way to start your morning just a brief uh, devotional or sermonette uh, just to uh, start your morning thinking about um, the right things. So go check that out. You can find Mana on all the platforms you find this uh, podcast on and uh, looking forward to that coming out every day. Um, also, by way of introduction to this episode, uh, might maybe because I'm a, a tired uh, newborn parent, uh, I forgot to click go on the recording for this episode so you will be hearing a second introduction that dr van dam is giving us um after introducing himself to me already for about five six minutes uh, we had to re-record the the introduction so uh just so you're aware but uh it was a great conversation and i hope uh, you're informed and inspired by it and enjoy this episode All right, folks. Uh, welcome back to the Real Talk podcast. Um, we had some technical difficulties there. I forgot to click record, so we're uh, recording this intro for a second time here. But uh, I uh, have the honor of talking to Dr. Cornelius Van Dam today. Uh, he's the Emeritus Professor of Old Testament Studies at our Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary in Hamilton. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll let him introduce himself uh, since he's done that already to me once. Um, 
Uh, maybe you can introduce yourself to our listeners this time and uh, give her, give a little background in your uh, your personal life and your career and where that's taking sure. you. Sure. I was born in the Netherlands. And as a child, I have vivid memories of watching the river traffic go by because our home was on the river out of Mass, just opposite the city of Dordrecht. And I would spend hours uh, as a young child uh, taking in the scene and also looking at the city of Dordrecht, which is, of course, the city of the Canons of Dord. And the, the cathedral of the city was right opposite our home. That's Today, cool. that's all high-rise apartments. But in those days, it was very much a, a, a village setting. Our family immigrated to Canada in 1952 when I was six years old. We actually came by plane, first landed in Iceland, then in Gander, Newfoundland, and finally Montreal, because planes in those days needed to refuel more frequently. From there, we took a train to Alberta, but eventually we came back to Burlington, where we came to Burlington, where I grew up. My father was a market gardener. My parents were godly parents, and they raised me in the fear of the Lord. And Reverend Van Doren, who was our minister in Burlington for many, many years, had enormous positive influence on me. And it was under his preaching that uh, I really desired to become a minister. And I was always very interested in Old Testament uh, study. And so from an early age, I uh, devoured everything I could on, on the Old Testament scriptures. And when I went to university, I specialized in Old Testament as well and its languages. After university, I went to the uh, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. We did not have our own seminary in those days. And I sat under the teaching of Cornelius Van Til, uh, Edmund Clowney, Jay Adams, um, those kind of people. It was a great experience. It was uh, very uh, edifying and it was a thrill to be there to see how the Presbyterians were you know, being faithful to scripture and, and having running a good seminary. Now that fall in 1968, the Synod of Orneville met and they decided to establish the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary. So when that got up and running, uh, I left Westminster Seminary and joined the uh, student body, the first student body of the uh, Canadian Reformed uh, Theological Seminary in Hamilton. We had Dr. Faber, Professor Salas, and Professor Kauenhoven uh, as our main professors. Uh, and then we had two adjuncts, uh, Reverend Van Doren and Reverend Schulten. So it was a small group, but it was a historic beginning. And you may remember that a couple of years ago, we produced a 50th anniversary book uh, commemorating uh, yep. the founding of the seminary. Uh, those are very good years. It was a small group, but uh, it was a, a very vibrant fellowship with the professors and the students. We knew we were making history and it, it was a wonderful time. From there, I became ordained as a minister of the word in Orlando, Alberta. And I was there for two and a half years. And then I went to Brampton for five years and then to Surrey, British Columbia for two years. Now, during my pastorate time, uh, I uh, pursued graduate studies and in 1981, the Synod of Smithsville appointed me to, um, well, it wasn't, well, I guess it was 1980, the Synod of Smithsville appointed me to teach Old Testament subjects in uh, Hamilton. And that's where I was for 30 years, by God's grace. And I've been retired now for 11 years. 
wow, that's uh, it's quite the journey. So we, um, so yeah, thirty years in in professors uh, as a professor. That's uh, it's amazing. But you've been all over all over the country, so you've had all sorts of uh, experience in our federation from you know right. almost, almost coast to coast, which is uh, yeah pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, today uh, I wanted to talk to uh, Dr. Van Dam about preaching. Um, not too long ago, he did a, a series on on preaching. Um, it was for, for Voice of the Church, who now actually is is part of, which is now part of RP. So um, you can check out some of their material. Um, but this series we talked about what preaching what preaching is. I think it was entitled "What Is a Sermon," and it uh, it talked about things like um, how to preach in a missional context and and like what were the aspects of a sermon and and um, yeah just like how do we understand what a sermon is from the minister and then also how do we receive that as, as people sitting in the pews so um, I want to start a little bit of a series on the podcast talking about the marks of the true church and this is uh, the first mark of the true church so I thought this was a good place to start and to understand what what preaching is and what we go to church every Sunday for, and um, that main you know reason why we're we're listening to the minister at the front. So uh, maybe we could start there. Like, what is preaching, and then we'll get into you know say uh, what that you, was in the Old Testament to your uh, your time at this at the seminary, and uh, and has that has the the call for preaching is that different in the New Testament or is that um, is that the same thing? Okay. That we see back, back in the Old Testament. Yeah, preaching is proclaiming the word of God. Um, it's uh, proclaiming the glad tidings of Jesus Christ, salvation in him. Preaching is heralding for the king. I guess in short, you could say preaching is being able to say, thus says the Lord from the pulpit in public worship. Mm -hmm. And the one who says that has been commissioned by the Lord to, to preach word he's been ordained for that task um, so that means that when a preacher preaches he's in the background the word of god is in the foreground the pulpit is not a place to talk about your personal experiences and have all kinds of anecdotes and stories and a bit of humor no the pulpit is a place to preach the glad tidings of salvation in christ and uh, to be able to say thus says the lord it's not minister's opinion but it's, it's the gospel, it's the word of God that has to be passed on. And that's really the task of the minister. Interesting. I suppose, yeah, sorry, no, go ahead. Yeah, I suppose the first time that Israel as a nation heard the glad tidings was at Mount Sinai. Hmm. When God uh, proclaimed to them from the mountaintop that, you know, you are my people. And I'm embracing you. I led you out of Egypt as on eagle wings. And I'm going to take care of you. I'm the God of your salvation. So that was a momentous event. And in a sense, that's the template for preaching. You know, uh, proclaiming the glad tidings. Now, after that, Moses became the uh, intermediary between God and the people. But the people also heard the Ten Commandments, right? And they were prefaced with the words, I am the Lord your God who set you free, who delivered you from the land of Egypt. Hmm. So that in a sense, I, you could say, is one of the very first proclamations of the gospel in, in public to God's people gathered together. Right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, you hear, 
I guess there's different situations of that I would think of in the Old Testament, like Solomon. I mean, there were other kings too who gathered the people. And I remember there's at least one place where Solomon gathers the people and 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 has it seems like a sermon, although there's a bit of a a, a prayer aspect to it, I guess too. Um, and there's there's obviously other situations too. And then probably you know one of the more well known would be like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, where that's actually we call that the Sermon on the Mount, which is um, and yeah we read it and we might not read the whole thing you know, all the way through. So we don't get the, the sermon feel, but um, yeah. So are those, were those the same or when, in, when Jesus is saying to the disciples, like go and, and bring the word um, when he, when he's commanding the apostles to, to go out and preach, is that a different command than what Moses kind of was um, or David or Solomon understood by that, by preaching or, well, well, when Jesus sent out his disciples to disciple the nation, then indeed they received an official commission to preach the glad tidings and, and to spread it abroad. Um, but just to take one step back, God expected his people to hear those glad tidings regularly. Like, it's remarkable that the fourth commandment, for example, says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The idea of remembering is very strong in the Old Testament in terms of recollecting what God has done and what he promised to do. So there's an agenda there. And so when um, the prophets uh, prophesied, when uh, the Lord Jesus uh, preached, the Lord Jesus regularly proclaimed in the synagogue and often on the Sabbath as well. Right. Uh, the, um, the mandate to go out and disciple the nations is actually two-pronged. First of all, it's for preachers, missionaries, officially ordained people to go out. But the term discipling also is a hint at congregational involvement, right? In order to disciple someone, you have to get to know him. You have to get to love that person. Uh, build a relationship with that person. And that's really uh, a primary avenue for, for church members to be involved in the discipling process. Interesting, yeah. So so preaching is, um, yeah, it being a herald and bringing the good news. So I'm just trying to understand, would you, would you say like, does someone need to be called to that? Um, obviously like as a minister you were you were called that I mean even speak to your own life like when you were growing up um, you said you were interested in in the ministry but um, what is that what does that call uh, feel like or look like and then like how do you know if if that is you I guess I mean I guess this could be a good pitch for people to go to the seminary too but it's uh, <laughs> How do you know if you are a preacher? And then can you, I'm just thinking of something like street preaching and something like that. If someone wants to get involved in that, what, what kind of understanding should we have around around that proclamation? Like, can anyone just be a herald tomorrow? Or is there a certain, um, you know, type of education that should be involved in that? In terms of the official proclamation, uh, well, let's take a step back for a moment. 
when I grew up, I had a desire grow in my heart to, to, to become a minister. And I think that's a gift of God's grace. However, at that point in time, I could not say the Lord has called me. You could only say that if a congregation actually calls you. Mm -hmm. So we tell our students at the seminary, you can desire to become a minister and you're, you're studying for years to become a minister, but you don't really have a call until the congregation actually decides they, they want you to preach from their pulpit. So it's a, uh, there has to be an official call from a congregation for you to be able to say, God has called me to the ministry. And that's why in the form for ordination, that's one of the questions that's asked. Uh, are you sure, are you convinced that God through the congregation has called you to, to preach the gospel? Interesting. So that's, yeah. Now, that's, that's one thing. So that's the official proclamation of the word Sunday mornings. But every Christian has the duty and the obligation to pass on the good news wherever they can. And it's remarkable that when the persecution started in the book of Acts, then scripture says the word spread. So wherever the people went, the word of God spread. Yeah. So they would talk about it with their fellow workers, with their neighbors. And it was like a tsunami, you know, it just rolled out. And the apostles certainly did their preaching, but the congregation also did their part. Hmm. Interesting. So preaching itself is, is something that you would need, I guess, would be ordained to do. Um, it, yeah, is is something else like if I'm, I guess it's not really preaching, but if I was to uh, evangelize, you know, openly on a street corner or something like that, is that um, is that something different? Should we view that different than than like a formal sermon, I guess, or a, a formal like preaching activity? Well, we have uh, the possibility to ordain missionaries, and of course, they do all this sort of thing. But people can certainly stand up and give a speech at a camp at uh, wherever. And it's not official proclamation, but you're still passing on the good news of, of Jesus Christ. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Very interesting. So I guess that's probably a decent uh, place to ask. How do we know then, like, what's the difference between a, a sermon and like a lecture or, or a speech or, and then how do we know, is it only because we're sitting in the worship service that we know the difference? Or, um, I mean, I guess we can get into the different aspects of it too, but um, should we understand them differently? Well, I guess the important thing with preaching is you have to be able to say, thus says the Lord. And um, that to me, is really the, the uh, seriousness and the weight of the ministerial office. What you say from the pulpit, you have to be able to say, thus says the Lord, because you're only passing on the word of God. You're only proclaiming the glad tidings of Jesus Christ. You're like an ambassador and you can't put in your own opinion you have to pass on the, the very words of the king. So, 
I think there's much more responsibility for the man on the pulpit who's been ordained than there is for other people who are doing their best to pass on the word of God. Right. It's an official gathering uh, to worship uh, God uh, in his presence as a corporate body. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. So, I mean, I would assume that you would discourage us, uh, even if you could say, thus says the Lord, as a, as a, as a minister at the front of a, a church in a worship service, does that, does it, sermon itself look different than say a lecture that a, a professor that you would have given a professor would have given in a in a you know a college or something like yeah what, what is the difference that's right well let me recount a childhood memory of mine i once sat in church as a young teenager and a minister got on the pulpit and he tried to explain to us what the church was and he went through greek grammar and greek vocabulary he gave a lecture I walked out of church thinking, well, I've learned a lot of things, but actually I haven't really been impacted by the gospel. And uh, that, that's what, to me, made a difference. Now, when it comes to the congregation, I've just been thinking about it. When it comes to the congregation, I, I'm reminded of what is written in, to the Colossians, where the apostle says, let the word of God dwell in you richly. So in other words, the word of God has to be uh, inhabiting our hearts and minds. And then the apostle goes on, he says, let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other in the Lord, in all wisdom and so on. So as congregational members, we are administering the word of God to each other. Hmm. And in cases of discipline, for example, we also say you shouldn't do that because God says, right? So right. in case of depression, you say, cheer up. The Lord has embraced you in his love. You know, there's lots of things to be thankful for. So you're administering the word to each other as a congregation. But you're not doing it as an ordained minister. But you're still doing it because you are in Christ. And the word of God is also your possession. And you have to pass it on. Hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so maybe we'll get back to this. So I'm, I'm hoping to do this series on the marks of the true church. So why is preaching a mark of the true church? Why is that such an important thing? And then why don't we understand that to be, uh, why do we call it preaching and not say the presentation of the gospel or the, you know, wherever the gospels proclaim? Like, why is it? Okay, because, yeah. Okay. Because. Preaching is proclaiming the word, is passing on the word of God. And why is that important? Because only the word of God is like a sword that can pierce our innermost being and convert us. So in other words, preaching is a means of grace. It's one of the means that God uses to bring people to himself and to raise people to a new life in Jesus Christ. Uh, the well-known passage in Romans 10, for example, how we're meant to call upon uh, his name if there are no preachers, right? Uh, there has to be the preaching of the gospel. Peter writes in his first letter, you've been born anew, not of perishable seed, but uh, through the word of God. And, uh, well, that sort of says it all. Uh, you need the word of God to be raised to a new life. So right. that's a means of grace, and that's why the true church has to have the the proclamation of the gospel. So would 
I mean, I don't know if this argument's really alive, but I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking about this, this word preaching. Well, like, is there an argument out there or is there, um, would people contend with that? Say like, yeah, preaching was good because that's, they didn't have, you know, podcasts <laughs> or they didn't have a, a PowerPoint or something like that. Like now we have, now we say we have better ways to engage people and their attention spans not the same as it used to be and and like can we play around with what this looks like or is preaching you know a theme and three points off of the, the pulpit and that's it like how do we understand that could you imagine going to church and watching a powerpoint presentation with no one saying anything <laughs> i can't <laughs> When, 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 a, when a sermon is being preached, it, it's a declaration. It's an appeal to your senses. It's emotion driven through the love of Christ to hear the word, to accept the word, to live the word. And uh, the Greek terms for preaching, there's three basic ones. Evangelizo to is the glad tidings, caruso to the proclamation idea. So that kind of vocabulary already tells us, uh, you know, some of the essence of, of preaching. You can't do it without the spoken word. Right, right. And you can, you can look at pictures, you can have PowerPoint presentations, but if the living voice, the proclamation isn't there, you might as well stay home and read a book or read the Bible, right? It, why, why, why be in church? Right, right. Well, so, I mean, must someone argue that, that I mean, I mean, with the, I guess the rise of live stream too, people are, are, you know, less inclined to, to go to church, but what is, um, you know, why is it so important that that is like a, a mark of the true church? Like if I see a church and I'm thinking, ah, you know, I could go over here. Um, the preaching of the word is kind of, yeah, they don't do a real good sermon, but everything else is really good. Um, why? Why is that a critical, um, you know, a mark based that we call it? Well, without the preaching of the word, there is no repentance. Without the preaching of the word, there's no life in Christ. And we have the promise that the word never returns empty. It always does something. It either works faith or it works unbelief. Now you can have a well-oiled machinery welcoming guests, giving them free coffee, having lots of nice sing-sing, making them feel culturally at ease. You can have all that, but it won't be anything if the word is not faithfully proclaimed. Uh, the, the proclamation of the word is absolutely essential uh, for a congregation to be assembled in the presence of God they have to hear his voice right yeah I mean it, yeah so in it cuts I guess it's, yeah it's that double-edged sword right it's grace and it's also you know convicting for people hmm. but yeah that's interesting so well maybe because we were just on this maybe let's talk about like the structure of a sermon what what were you what would the seminary teach about that and like how like why is that the way we do it um, well, a, a sermon, a, 
a sermon should above all be understandable uh, and logical. It goes without saying it has to be biblical. It has to be based on scripture. I, I should interject here that you have to remember that we ministers are vessels of clay. Making a sermon is not easy, especially if you have to make two every week. Uh, it requires a lot of uh, devoted study, dedication, and a lot of listening. A minister should listen to the scriptures. He should listen to his congregation, what the needs are. A minister should also listen to what's going on outside the church, culturally, and in terms of uh, events that are taking place. Right, yeah. And after listening to the scriptures, also in the light of what he's hearing in the congregation and in the world, he puts together a message that is directed to God's people within the context in which they're living. And his aim above all is to let them hear the word of God for instruction, for self-correction, for encouragement, uh, for guiding them in their daily life. And that's an awesome privilege. At the same time, because the minister working on a sermon during the week, it can get very complicated. But the message has to be simple, direct, focused. It should be possible for someone coming home, talking to the kids about the sermon, to be able to summarize the sermon in two or three sentences and say, this is what the minister really wanted us to know. But if we come out of church all fuzzed and don't have a clue what actually went on, then that sermon didn't hit home. Right. Hmm. Now, having said that, we should train our children to go to church in a positive atmosphere, you know, with a positive attitude. Uh, because even if you don't get much out of a sermon because the minister had a bad week or you weren't listening, still you're under the blessing as someone said right yep. you're under the blessing you receive the blessing before you go mm -hmm. and you're able to participate in singing in worshiping uh, you're in the presence of god with his people yeah i mean i gotta say it's probably more likely that we weren't listening than it was a bad sermon but <laughs> so, <laughs> but what um should the minister be focused on that when they're making the sermon that that um, I mean, I guess everyone comes at it from different, like different age groups, different. Um, it's, do you preach to a certain um, demographic, I guess, or, or do you preach at a certain level that for understanding for the congregation or um, do different sermon, do you do different things in different sermons or um, like, how do you make sure that you're getting the message across at a level that's understandable? but also deep enough. Well, the old adage is the level of a 13 year old. That's that offend some people. <laughs> there's, there, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, that means that not only is the congregation helped in understanding it, if you have visitors in church, they also will understand it. Right. Uh, so the gospel should be understandable. Now, the picking of a text is very important because depending on what your text is, 
will determine the contents of the sermon and determine the application. Right. So uh, that that's sometimes tricky. And therefore, it's a very good idea if, if ministers plan on preaching a series. Then automatically you get different situations, different contexts, different messages, because you're working your way through uh, a passage, uh, a longer passage of scripture. Right. Yeah, right. That makes sense. How does, hmm. yeah, I guess there's different, uh, like the afternoon sermons are often preached from the Heidelberg Catechism. I guess it's a little bit more. It's a more didactic sermon. Yes. Right, yeah. All the structure of the catechism while pulling um, Bible passages out and explaining that. Um, how is it best done to preach through a larger passage? Because I've, I've noticed that like ministers will off if they preach off, say, well, I mean, the Old Testament is a good example. If you preach out of uh, Genesis or Exodus, it's it's more of a story telling in the, in the passage. Um, is there a good way to to get that across without just reading the passage and and stopping after every verse to you know just explain what it means? Well, a passage should be understood holistically, and you can demarcate. Uh, what you want to preach on. Personally, I think you have to be very careful not to make your text too long because you end the risk of simply repeating what's already there and what people already realize. Yep. If you take a key element in the longer passage and focus on that and draw out from that uh, what God is telling his people, uh, that can be a very effective way of, of getting the gospel across. And then later on, when people read that passage, they say, oh, remember the minister said such and such about that passage. Right, right. Hmm. So it, it, it's good to focus on a smaller unit and then draw out from it uh, the, 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 the gospel. Right. It's, it's like taking a, a piece of carpet that appeals to you. And when you lift it up to have a closer look, you're actually taking the rest of the carpet with you. But you're still focusing on that one part, but that one part can only be understood within the context of the greater whole. Oh, actually, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess, yeah, there's always there's always a portion of a larger passage that speaks to the larger passage and, and can yeah help explain the whole thing too. Yeah. So when a minister's when a minister's preaching off the pulpit, how I mean, this is a bit of a different topic. How should they understand the congregation? Like, obviously, they are a herald. They are they are there to say, thus says the Lord, and to kind of recede behind the word that they're preaching. Um, but they're, yeah, I've heard, I've heard ministers who are doing a speech or something say, um, you don't really know who's in the audience. And somehow, to me, audience isn't the right word. Um, it's a congregation, but how should a minister view the the listeners? Like sitting in the pews, um, are they? Is the is the process of a sermon more um, delivering something for those receiving it, or is it a bit more interactive? Like like seeing how the congregation's reacting. I said yes to what you're saying, or. Um, What's that dynamic like? And then, or what should it be like, I guess? Well, a minister, one of the images of a minister is a shepherd. And a shepherd has to feed his flock. 
So the congregation that's in front of the minister is his flock. Those are his sheep. He's responsible for them. He's got to feed them. So when he preaches, he has to keep their needs in mind. Um, it's a public worship service of the congregation. And it's his sheep that he uh, is determined to, to succor, to feed, to encourage, to help along life's journey. It has been said that a worship service is like the workshop of the Holy Spirit. Good sermons delivered according to the needs of the congregation and clearly declaring the will of God. Good sermons will reduce the workload of the minister and the elders in terms of catch putting out fires in the congregation. Because if you have good preaching, it's like I said, it's the workshop of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses that preaching to align people's thinking in godly ways, to admonish people in godly ways, to discipline people. You've got everybody together and you're telling them all the same, uh, the same word of God. And it impacts different families differently, but they all apply to themselves. And if they take heed to the word, the office bearers should have less work to do in terms of rescuing people from bad situations. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, a lot of times when you're sitting there listening to a sermon, you think, how did the minister know to preach that to me? <laughs> but I guess, and I guess that your neighbor sitting beside you could also be thinking the same thing. That's right. Um, should the minister focus on on issues that he knows is like you said individual needs and I guess knowing your individual sheep in your flock, but how do you, should he focus specifically on some issues or is there a, a place to target things a little bit more directly? I mean, just it, it depends on the text of scripture. You, you preach the text and then you let the chips fall where they may. Hmm. And if people say, oh, he was after me. The minister can say, listen, I'm preaching the text. And if the shoe fits, okay. Right. Right. Is there is there a danger of of having it not apply as directly to a congregation? Or say preaching a series of sermons that uh I don't know, maybe softballing it to the congregation, because the congregation's, you know, maybe doing well in a certain aspect, but the minister may just preach something as, you know not a feel-good series but like uh is there should the minister be striving to be more direct or or to correct or yeah or is it just like i pick a passage and let the holy spirit do its work well i think it's very instructive to see how the lord jesus addresses the seven churches in asia minor in the book of revelation uh, depending on their situation he will encourage them or admonish them um, or he will even uh, specifically name people if it's a public scandal. Um, so the long and short of it is the minister should be well attuned to the congregation and simply preach the text that's in front of them. I don't think I've seen anyone get named off the pulpit before. <laughs> well, the Lord Jesus... Um, didn't actually give the specific name in, in, in one of the letters, but he used the Old Testament name, right? 
And oh, so yeah. people could uh, figure out, oh, he must be after that heretic, but it wasn't <laughs> said directly. Right. Interesting. So, so yeah, I, I guess the minister's preaching to his flock. Um, is there, yeah, I'm getting, I'm just trying to get into, like, get the idea of, like, I mean, a lot now churches, I guess more evangelical churches, a lot of focus is put on, like, how the congregation feels, how, how do you feel as you're a part of the worship service? I mean, a lot of it has to do with the singing and the other parts of the liturgy, but this, does the sermon touch you? Does it uh, inspire you to, you know, jump up and raise your hands or um, how should we, how should we think about that? Like, as we're listening to a sermon, um, I mean, they, I guess the, uh, the Dutch way would just be to, you know, sit quiet and understand it. So, but uh, is there is there room for interaction in the in a worship or in a, a sermon or I mean in a worship service? There's obviously the back and forth of the liturgy, but is there is there any room for that? Like have a question and answer period sometime. Yeah, yeah I guess yeah, something like that. Or yeah, even asking yeah asking questions in the sermon just casually, um, you know, like maybe to the kids or something like that. I think that happens in mission context. Okay. Um, in the mission field, that would happen. Certainly, a person would stop and say, does everybody understand this? And, and continue on. I think in our typical modern urban setting, the problem is a little different. I think the issue that we face is that we live in a very individualistic, consumerist culture. So people are after satisfying their desires. And it's a very much uh, me, myself, and I uh, atmosphere that we're in. And the proclamation of the gospel goes directly against all those kind of notions because it's not about me, myself, and I. It's about the Lord and his glory and his kingship and his agenda and his wishes. Mm -hmm. um, so it's totally directed away from what we like to what he wants and what he likes. Right. So it's totally countercultural. And um, the desire to have visitors come to church can sometimes be expressed in a way that's not biblical by making it as comfortable as possible for people to come to our church. You may be catering to their desire for fulfillment of their wishes rather than to the norms of the gospel. And it's a danger that... Uh, we have to be aware of right right so yeah i guess it's like why why go down that road with your congregation if if it's not i guess it doesn't bring much to the to the sermon but yeah interesting yeah the, the q a thing i guess is, is that's become more common i think even in our churches that doing something like that or some interaction even maybe half of the sermon or uh, or, yeah, more particularly probably in the afternoons has been, been more understood as a teaching kind of sermon. That's right. The afternoon sermon uh, is supposed to be more catechetical. Uh, it's not always very clearly distinguished anymore in our tradition. But uh, it the idea is for it to be more educational, yes. Right, right. Interesting. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways to go with this. I want to talk about the whole mission. The mission thing too. Um, maybe before we do that, 
we should, yeah, maybe we'll get back to this sermon and, and how maybe elders or leaders in the church can help uh, a minister understand the sermons that he's preaching. Um, we can get into like the evaluation side of it and, and stuff like that, but also I want to understand how how does the, how do elders help the minister practically understand if his sermons are being well received or or if there's some uh, need that he hasn't been addressing um, in the in the congregation? Is that a discussion that happens around like a, a consistory table and and then how does that how does that go? How is that received by both sides? Well, elders can be an enormous help in uh, because as I mentioned earlier, one of the ears of a minister should be on his congregation, but the elders know far more what's going on in the congregation than a typical minister would. And so the elders can advise a minister and say, you know, this is a growing problem or that's a growing issue you should maybe address. And uh, that's very valuable for a minister to get that kind of feedback. Uh, so elders, and it's also part of the official description of the elders that they should help the ministers and uh, also supervise the preaching of the word. So elders definitely have a very important role to play in facilitating the, uh, yeah, making known the needs of the congregation to, to the minister. Now, the longer a minister's in a place, the more adept he'll himself become at knowing what's going on. But particularly in the first few years, it, it's very, very important for elders to uh, provide that kind of feedback. And they can also provide feedback on in terms of how the sermons are going over into the congregation. Uh, usually a minister will also sense that himself as well. Um, but there should be a good interplay between elders and minister. Is that more like a style, like how, how it's being received? Like how is the style or approach to the sermon being received? Or, or is it, I mean, I guess it could also be the content, like, or, or topics like or the topical uh, selection. Yeah, all kinds of all kinds of issues can be uh, part of the conversation. Yes. Interesting. So is that is that done like well? I think in our churches, like I know as I was a I was a deacon, so I sat at council table, but that was more workload reviews. But I guess the consistory deals with uh, the content of the sermon. Um, is that done well in our churches typically, or? Or is it is it a pain point or hard to hard to say? It's hard for me to comment on that because when I was a minister, uh, there was no big dis. It was never a real big discussion item on the uh, on the consistory table. Uh, I would ask the elders if there was anything they had to comment on about the preaching or about my work. Uh, but nowadays, it is becoming a, an official item on the consistory table in terms of uh, sermon evaluation and that sort of thing. A couple of comments on that. First of all, um, it's a very tricky area because a minister can be working to the utmost of his abilities and the elder may think, well, I don't know, he should actually do a little bit better and that can be extremely discouraging for a minister. It can actually break the ministerial spirit and make him depressed and make him even less effective. So right. elders should be uh, aware of possible fragility in terms of a minister's uh, mental makeup. 
and uh, encouragement is always something that, that that that's helpful. Having said that, I think there should be open communication between a minister and the elders, and the elders should be able be free to be able to go to a minister and say, "Listen, uh, we've got a meeting coming up, but I don't want to bring all this up at the meeting. But this is what I just wanted to tell you. You know, either as an encouragement or as a question: Could you not do a bit more of this or that?" Right. And I think that that's very, very helpful. If there is sermon evaluation, I think the minister should be part of the conversation so that he can uh, maybe explain or elucidate some of the issues that are being brought forward. Right. Um, but I don't think official sermon evaluation should be done too often. I mean, it's it makes you feel like you're under the gun all the time. You know, yeah. it gives you the uh, gives you a feeling of being inhibited and uh being uh yeah over supervised yeah i was gonna say there's like the idea that like an elder may have a template or, or something to look for in sermons but i for some reason that to me felt feels like you're asking your minister to do a classes exam every every time he gets on the pulpit it's like well then you it, yeah does that limit the way the minister uh, a pastor will like will open up about certain things or or you know if he feels that he needs to explore a certain aspect as opposed to, um, you know, a, di a different one that's, you know, required on the evaluation, like, how does that, um, how would that play in a sermon, like, or, or, you know, if a minister always had that on his plate, like, thinking about that? Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. It shouldn't be too, uh, yeah, too officially set up in categories and all that kind of stuff. Uh, as I said, a minister will often himself sense whether his sermons are 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 hitting home or not. And uh, ministers that I know will probably be hardest on themselves in trying to, you know, make up for whatever shortcomings there may be. And elders can help them along in that process. Uh, and it's part of their task. Uh, elders have to... Uh, you know, supervise the preaching of the word. But it should be done in a very considerate manner, realizing that also ministers are vessels of clay. Yeah. I once saw an ad in a paper. I once saw an ad in the paper, and it was along these lines. I have a speech problem. I have epileptic fits. I'm ugly to look at. But I love to preach the gospel. Who wants me? Signed, Apostle Paul. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, he describes himself as being weak. And yet, you know, you don't find anybody who would, yeah, speak, you know, you know, highly of him in any, <laughs> in every way. So that's funny. So, so, yeah, I guess the elders can be a really good help. How does, how about the congregation, like as individuals? Like, what uh, if if you're noticing something? I mean, it's it's almost like just don't notice something. Just listen to the sermon and, and apply it to your life. But if if you're giving feedback to your minister as as a lay person in the pew, what's the best way to do that? Or like, should it be done through your elder? Or um, you know, if it's negative or positive, or or is there a good way to do that? Or um, just on your way out of church, start yelling. 
Yeah, that's not that's not the way to do it. <laughs> no, you wait at least one full day before you approach the minister. But if you have a, a serious concern, it's best to go straight to the minister. Okay. What yeah. if just just generally like just good advice or not advice, even just uh, uh, positive encouragement or, or things like that? How how is that best received, or how is that received as a as a minister, and, and like how is that best given? Well, I think if a person goes to the minister and, and, and tries to put things in a positive light and say, first of all, all the good things that he likes about the minister and, you know, in, in an encouraging way. But then, minister, there's one thing I, I'd like to share with you and then you can explain your problem and, and see where it goes from there. Um, and right. if now sometimes ministers hear all kinds of stuff that's actually not even true you know, in terms of evaluation or whatever, but just just accept it and say you'll take it into consideration and 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 deal with it. Uh, for example, a congregation member will come up and say, Minister, that, that sermon was totally wrong because your application was totally off. And uh, well, have you studied the text? No, I haven't. But if the minister is convinced that what he said was indeed biblical and reformed and accurate, then he can quietly listen to the objection and also silently dismiss it. I mean, right, right. But the point is to keep the communication open and, and, and to be encouraging to each other. And also to thank a congregational member who comes forward because it's not always pleasant or easy for some of the congregation to approach a minister about something that troubles him. Right. Uh, but as a minister, you should also uh, facilitate that by being open to comments and inviting people to your study and, and listening and and showing interest also in the other person. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A couple things that I hadn't thought of before, but are, I guess more on the negative side of things, but if, I mean, we're mostly talking about style or, or maybe a, a minister's missing something in the, in maybe not addressing the teenagers or something like that like little things that that a congregation might pick up on but if it's uh i mean i can't think of an example of when this would happen but if if it's a doctrinal issue how does that get dealt with um is there a process for that um or is that like the elders deal with that what would what would hypothetically that look like i can't think of a scenario where this would even happen but um where the minister's you know preaching something that's not in accordance with God's word. Well, if, if heresy is being preached from the pulpit, then the elders uh, need to talk to the minister about it. And if they can't convince the minister, then they should call in the church visitors to help them. And uh, if the church visitors can't get anywhere, well, then eventually it ends up on classes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's a bit of a process. Those, those are those are very rare. I think in the history of our churches, it's only happened once. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I can think of a scenario, but yeah, it only happened once. That's that there was actually a doctrinal issue. Right. But years and years ago, a certain Reverend Ahan refused to sign a form of subscription, and that eventually led to his uh, his dismissal. But those are very rare instances in in the history of Canadian Reform Church. It's happened only once. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. We have our seminary now, so that's all fixed all the problems, I guess. 
one other question I'm just curious about is that is it wise to, like we don't have term limits for ministers right like we have term uh, i mean we have term limits for elders i guess i mean that's not to do with anything i guess it's more burden but um for a minister you mentioned like the first couple years are like a lot of getting used to the congregation getting to know everybody and then knowing like learning how to preach to them i guess um which I guess could be a bit of a change in style from an old congregation if they are you know, on their second or third. Um, is it wise to have a, a ministers, I guess, ordained for life in a in a congregation? Like, I guess all only mechanism I know of, basically, of having a minister move on to another congregation would be another call. Um, That's right. I mean, aside from the negative, I guess. Um, what is it? Article, I want to say 48. It's not 48. Article 13. 13, I'm way off. Um, yeah, would it be, would it be like wise to um, think about, a, a, not a, I guess not a term limit, but um, is it, is it healthy to have a, a minister stay in a congregation for 15, 20 years? Like I guess, I guess for both sides, for the minister, but also for the congregation. I think it's not a matter of is it helpful or not. It's just a, a reality. If a minister doesn't get a call, he's there, whether he would like to move or not. And as long as he's faithfully preaching the word, um, that that's the way that that's the way the system is. Um, I'm I'm just trying to think of yeah, like when a minister when a minister is ordained or installed as as, as the, the minister of that particular congregation, he, he binds himself to that flock. He's their shepherd. And as long as he's doing his work to the best of his ability, then that's where he is. And when he gets a call to another congregation, he also has a call to this congregation. He has two calls. Every time there's a call, he's got two calls and he has to make a decision uh, about what, what to do. Right. And I, I, the, the beauty of being in a congregation for a long time is that you really get to know your people and you can be extremely effective if you are, uh, if you have the gifts to to proclaim the word afresh every Sunday and to to really be a shepherd among your people, because part of the task of a minister is also to visit the congregation and to be shepherding. Very important. Right, yeah. Administering the word through the week. Mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. Is there is there some advice that you would give to a minister or even I guess a congregation to it? I don't know if there's any danger in that, like having a minister there for so long or, or not long enough, um, having them have a call after, I mean, well, you stayed in New Orleans for two years, I guess, two, two and a half. Um, is that too short a time span or is it, uh, or yeah, or would you, would you make a recommendation to somebody if they, you know, had a call after 10 years of being somewhere, if that's a, is that a health thing to move or is it, uh, yeah, really have to evaluate the call, the calls individually. 
Yeah, it really depends. Uh, the advice I would give any minister is to keep digging in the scriptures and bring out treasures new and old. That's what keeps the preaching alive and that's what keeps the preaching fresh. And be engaged with the culture around you in a way that you can help the congregation. Uh, a minister should not uh, get into an auto mode where you just you know, go through the motions. Uh, you've got to be alive and well and be engaged with the issues of the day and with the scriptures. And it's your duty to dig into the word and to bring it out. And it's exciting. Mm -hmm. I mean, being a minister must be one of the most privileged full-time enterprises on, on the face of the earth. I mean, you are allowed to be a spokesperson for the Lord God Almighty in an age which denies him, in an age which wants to go its own way. And you are prophetic voice. You're the voice of the living God, encouraging the people, giving direction to the people. Like the ministry is, is such a, a beautiful calling. And I can't imagine any minister, you know, getting fed up with it or trying to uh, escape the responsibilities of it. It's, it's something that energizes you. It's, it's a wonderful calling. I never sought the professorate. I, I never dreamt I would be a professor, but I wanted to continue studying so I could be better equipped to, to, to preach the full counsel of God. And being a minister, you know, with, uh, the support of a consistory of elders and so on is an awesome privilege. And I just can't imagine uh, uh, <laughs> people getting tired of it. I mean, yeah. there can be periods of stress in a congregation. You know, congregation go through different trials, but then the consistory can say, okay, we'll give you a little sabbatical or we'll give you an extra holiday. I mean, there, there can be times when a minister really needs a break because he's been overworked due to circumstances. Well, then right. a consistory should say, okay, look, take six months off, you know, and that is becoming more common in our circles, uh, these uh, short sabbaticals. And I think it's a very, very good thing. Right, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It can be a, a great help to a minister. Yeah, because it, it's a big, yeah, it's a quite the task. I guess it is. Is that is that kind of related to like the I mean there's obviously the preaching that we're talking about but there there's the pastoral side where, where you're visiting the congregation is that a is that a growing concern that that's uh, becoming is that becoming more of a a job because I I feel like our I mean a lot of our churches are growing quite large and many have two ministers now um, and it seems to be becoming more and more of a trend is that mainly because of the size of the congregation uh is the pastoral need different or is it because yeah a lot of ministers are only preaching one sermon now they're uh, uh many yeah are. and i kind of i, I kind of regret that because i think a minister who knows his flock the best can kind of mold and shape the flock too in terms of you know educating uh encouraging and so on um too many pulpit exchanges can be detrimental um, and if a minister is not able to do two sermons a week well then maybe some of his other work should be alleviated a little bit or a review taken of his pastoral duties but right. ideally there should not be too many uh pulpit exchanges yeah, it, it is a it, it is a growing trend that a minister only preaches once in his congregation 
yeah. but I I don't think it's a it's a good direction. Yeah, I guess they know. Yeah, you know your flock the best, so it's yeah. I mean, why <laughs> why pass that off to somebody else? I guess right. Yeah. But again, guest history has to make it possible for the minister to be able to do his work too. You know, to be able to do make two sermons a week. Yeah, right. It, it's it's a delicate balance. Yeah, that, I mean, that could be a growing consistory. <laughs> like some of our, you know, some of our churches have sixteen elders, and so that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a body that could, I mean, can alleviate a lot of work, but that's, uh, you know, possibly growing too big too. But hmm. well, that's interesting. Well, so that's 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 actually a good point. Like I think we should not underestimate the work of the elders. The elders have full time work, and then they go on family visits in the evening. They do other visits in the evening. And it's all in addition to their full-time task. I have an enormous respect for the elders uh, who serve our churches. They're dedicated men and they have high ideals and, and they give their everything to the task. And we also have to keep that in mind when we talk about the, the workload of a minister. Right, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Is that has that changed at all over over the in the past? Um, the require well, you know, the requirement, but the the feeling of need or the need for visiting or that pastoral work is that um, I guess the benchmark for that um, changed at all. Um, I'm just thinking of my work as a deacon, and it was like I wonder if this level of the feeling of need was always the same. Like, were we helping out uh, people in this situation a hundred years ago? Was that the same? Uh, do we view those situations the same or are we a little bit more privileged in our way that we, you know, say require more counseling or require more, uh, you know, pastoral care? Is that is that a, a trend at all or it's hard to say? It's hard to say, but as a general benchmark, the less people know the scriptures and the less Bible knowledge people have, the more pastoral care they're going to need. Right. That plays now, we, we have Christian schools, so there should be actually more biblical insight among our churches than there were when we all had to go to public school. That's true. Yeah. That's yeah, that I mean that's a challenge for the young people. <laughs> the CEO. Yeah, I don't know if that's the case. Hmm. Interesting. Definitely something that we should all think about. Now the the another comment that could be made is that we live in a society which has abandoned biblical norms on mass, and that does make it more difficult for the members of our congregations because the cultural markers are evil. They're no longer positive. Right, true. So, yeah, you're, I guess you're battling as a pastor. You're not just battling the culture from the pulpit, but also in your visits, you're, it's a real, yeah, I guess that's real, uh, real pastoring, not just, uh, you know, slight correctives, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so I want to, yeah, I want to get into this, this, uh, I mean, the growing trend or the growing, uh, view of missional churches. So we've we've talked about this a lot in our podcast, like something that really interests interests us. But 
I guess from the preaching aspect, is there a dichotomy between preaching to uh, your flock or a minister preaching to his congregation, the members and regular guests, and preaching to, you know, the public who possibly could be there? Or, I mean, we like, like to use the word unchurched. That's the new... That's the new phraseology, I guess. Like, is it, is there, is there a tension there between trying to feed your flock in a way that you know they need to be fed, but yet um, preaching almost missional sermons in order to capture like the first time churchgoer? Okay, that's a very good question. It's a nice question. I would like to mentioned two things. First of all, a missionary on the mission field will preach a sermon that's quite different from a sermon in an established congregation. Right. Now, when it comes to an established congregation, the minister's task is to preach to his flock. And I think we're creating a false dilemma if we say, well, is this sermon going to be understandable to an outsider? That's not the issue. If the gospel is simply and powerfully presented to the church people, an outsider will know enough to understand enough of what is being said. Right. So I think it's a false dilemma that either or thing. Uh, the only thing is if you're preaching on a corner of a street in Toronto, you're going to present it a little differently than in church. But in a in church we're in public worship service i'd like to underline both public so we should be ready for visitors to come in we should warmly welcome them and, and make them feel at home but they won't feel at home because the gospel is being preached and it calls sin sin and it calls light the light and it presents them with the demands of an all-powerful god who is going to come to judge the living and the dead uh that's the situation because we're in church to worship. The church service is not designed to attract outsiders. I know that sounds harsh, but it's the truth. A church service, we come together to worship, to listen to the Lord, to hear the gospel, to be admonished, to be encouraged, uh, to receive the word from the minister. Um, it has been said that if someone comes from outside and feels really comfortable in church, then there's probably something wrong. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's Daryl Hart, Daryl Hart and John Muther have written a book called uh, Worship with Reverence and Awe. Let me just quote to you something from that book because I've got it here in front of me because I knew this would probably come up. <laughs> Worship, they write, is a subversive and counter-cultural act of an alien people who forsaking the world listen to the voice of her master saying, follow me. True worship then will be odd and perhaps even weird to the watching world. This oddness is not lamentable, but essential to the church's faithfulness and witness. For if the gospel is foolishness, 
it is foolish only to those who do not believe. Furthermore, the claim that the church must reject worship as old fashioned, irrelevant and isolated is to be rejected because believers see the church at worship as the real world. That's the world they're in, is the world of worship. The gathering of the saints in the Holy of Holies is the eschatological foretaste of the new heavens and a new earth. So to put it differently, when we are in worship, then with the wings of faith, we're worshiping with the saints in heaven. Our worship on earth is in sync with heaven. We're being separated from a world of sin. So when an unbeliever comes into church, he gets a shock. Hey, this is totally different from what I'm used to. And that's a healthy shock. Right. And uh, so yeah, that is a tough, a tough thing these days. So that's just, that's probably how I would have thought about it. Like that if an outsider comes in, they shouldn't really feel comfortable because it's not really a comfortable place to be. If you're not part of the congregation, you're not part that's of right. that that culture. Right. I mean, it's not like it's not like going to a football game where they're just trying to get everybody to. But yeah, I mean, even that, even going to a baseball game or something like that, a football game, or like if you're not, if you don't go to those regularly, you don't really know what that even looks like. So the culture there doesn't just like it doesn't try to embrace you. You just go and become a part of. It. That's right. It's interesting that we've now, like, in I guess in the last few years, we've, we've, I think our, our uh, maybe our churches, but maybe just like Christianity more broadly, like our reformed world has tried to be intentional about what our services look like in order to become, I guess, become more welcoming for someone. But yeah, I guess you're saying there is like a, there's a healthy, tension there that should exist and then we should expect that the holy spirit will show up in the person's heart when they when they walk through the doors of the church and and convict them hmm. yeah, it's, a, it's a tough thing to piece piece through because yeah we're, we've we've kind of accepted the the line that we should you know become more you know attractive or or more uh like, yeah, kind of break those walls down, I guess. So how does, I guess, well, it, we, as, a, we, as a leadership of a church, like it must, um, you must, you have to kind of pick a lane, not pick a lane, but you have to pick where to put your resources, I guess, right? Like your time and energy that your leadership is putting into your, uh, into the, the, the worship service, but also into like the life of the church has to be focused in certain areas. Does that, should we be more inward focused then? Or is that kind of still that false dilemma? Like even speaking like that, is that not really the way we should be talking about it? No, 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 no. We should, we should welcome visitors with open arms and having friendly ushers who welcome people coming to churches is excellent idea. And we should do everything possible to, to, to make them feel at ease that they're welcome in our midst. Uh, but then having said that, they should just participate in the church service, just like anybody else. When the Lord spoke to his people from Mount Sinai, the place was also full of aliens and, and people who were not Israelites. 
because they left Egypt with a mixed uh, population. Right. Uh, yeah. People fled from Egypt along with the Israelites. And the Lord didn't make all kinds of distinctions. He just told them the news that the people of Israel had to hear and everybody else heard it. But they were welcome to join. If they got circumcised, they're part of it. They were always welcome to join. But no special allowance was made for them from Mount Sinai. Right. And when Moses had his huge sermon, which is basically the book of Deuteronomy, uh, because that was like a, a sermon that Moses made before they came to the promised land. He, he just said, addressed the people of Israel, but right. the aliens and the others were included. And we do the same today. You know, we are plagued with consumerism. So we're, we're trying to be attractive. We're mm -hmm. trying to estimate what people want. Well, if you bring people into the church according to their wants, they're going to be setting the agenda for how they are to be admitted. Right. And and it's an upside down world, right? Yeah. yeah. And your analogy of a baseball game is a good one because when you go to a baseball game and if you don't know the rules, you're going to be puzzled. Yeah. Well, let first time churchgoers be a bit puzzled. They'll learn, you know, come again. You'll get used to it. You'll yeah. start learning. It's not like no one's able to explain it to you. It's just that. That's right. Just the worship service isn't set up to explain it to you. <laughs> yeah. So is that, I guess that, well, I mean, we touched on that before. That does differ from a mission, a mission field like proper, right? Like a mission church is more set up to accommodate people who are coming in to ensure everyone's, you know. Learning. That's right. That's right. I'm glad. Yeah, I that that is different. Like a church, a true church plant in a in a neighborhood that's never heard the gospel, that's totally different. I was involved in that in Philadelphia many many years ago, and I was a student there, yep. and we tried to set up a church there, and we started off by having boys play basketball. We wore them out, and then we told them stories from the Bible. They came back. Eventually, we had a tournament. We invited the parents to come. We had everybody listen to the gospel at that point. And later on, that developed into a church. Wow. And so there's different strategies. But we're, if we're talking about a public worship in an established Reformed congregation, yeah, newcomers who come in will get a bit of a culture shock. But if they are embraced with love by the people in the church, who show a genuine concern for them and follow up with visiting them and so on, uh, the Lord uses that. And, and then we're missional. Right. And we don't need to have a missional service necessarily. Now, right. having said that, we can reach out to the neighborhood by having special programs. Vacation Bible School is, is a standard one. But we could also sponsor evenings in the church during the week, addressing topics of interest to the neighborhood and invite them all in and show right. biblical solutions for the problems that are there in our society. Hmm. There are many ways that we can be an attractive light, but God tells us in his word that we do have to be a light. We shouldn't hide the light. Mm -hmm. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, right? So we, that word has to spread just like it did in Acts. Right, yeah, yeah. Huh. So then to the preaching then, 
does, I guess the minister is always preaching to the flock. Would they change anything about that if they knew, even knew that newcomers were there? Or if somebody said, hey, I invited my neighbor, would, as a minister, would you change anything about how you deliver that sermon? Or, I mean, I if, don't... If, if the minister has been delivering clear, simple, focused sermons, he won't have to make too many adjustments. Right, he could maybe he could maybe explain a point or two a little bit more fully, um, which is which is good also for the congregation because right. they need to be constantly reminded as well. Hmm. But then you know you have the letter to the Romans. Uh, this was. This letter was undoubtedly read in, in, in a worship service, probably. And theologians are still trying to get their head around some of the things that are mentioned there. But it's a letter sent to new Christians. Right. So we shouldn't be too scared to talk about justification, sanctification. But we could explain, okay, sanctification means that the Lord is, is making you holy, right? He's He's preparing you through the work of the Holy Spirit to incline your heart to the Lord, to be holy, sanctification. So those terms can be explained during the uh, sermon. But at the same time, we shouldn't be scared to use them. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, but yeah, you're going to the language of it. That's a more, that's a more common uh, argument, I guess, for some of this change that we can, that we've seen uh, with with regards to becoming professional, like I guess taking some of that, uh, what it, this came out of that uh, that series. I think um, Doctor Dunk he he said Christianese. I think it was he called it, oh, which yeah. is like, I mean, I guess a, a a way of saying some you know words that you wouldn't hear everywhere, like words that you only hear in a church. In, in church. Yeah. So, but yeah, I guess you're saying like there's not really a need to take that out. But maybe we could explain. explain it. Right. So is there but is the there flip side. those big words? Like I mean that that is one of those things that creates that, you know, probably uncomfortable, you know, uh, you know, barrier, I guess. But yeah, if if the letter of Romans was passed around and read to teenagers off the pulpit in those days, I mean it was <laughs> you can imagine how little they got out of that. But but yeah, I mean that, that is one of those things that helps to enrich the message once you've been there or once you know, okay. you've been part of the flock, right? I mean, the same thing is said about the Bible as a whole. Like, it, it, when you read a passage, it speaks to the little child, but it also speaks to, you know, you as you as you age. Like, every time you read a passage, it just keeps... That's right. You get, there. And I mean, if that wasn't gets the, out of it according to their ability. I mean, if that wasn't the case, it would be, there would be no, you know, discipline of theology, I guess we would have it all figured out, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it is an interesting, um, it's an interesting conversation that our churches are having in, in the, you know, taking that Christian ease out or, or dumbing down our vocabulary or creating a more accessible worship service. So it's something that we've been chatting about on the podcast, but I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to mention about that specifically. Like, Well, I think the flip side is that we as preachers have to be careful that we don't use the language of the world uncritically. Hmm. Uh, for example, 
this may sound innocent, but it is really as innocent as it sounds, the term weekend. Biblically speaking, a weekend is ending on Saturday because the Sunday is the first day of the week. Right. So if a person from the pulpit wants to talk about a time frame from Friday to Monday, he should not use the term weekend. He should say weekend plus Monday to alert the congregation that our culture is stealing our Sunday. And now you have more and more calendars that put Sunday as the seventh day of the week. In Europe, it's almost impossible to buy a calendar with Sunday at the first day of the week. Oh, really? That's right. That's just annoying. <laughs> yeah, but that's not only annoying, but it's reconfiguring the time frame that a culture lives in. Hmm. We as Christians should maintain that the first day of the week is the Lord's day. We begin the day of the week with worship, remembering the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week. But the world, and if you go shopping for a calendar, you'll see more and more calendars end with the Sunday rather than beginning with the Sunday that the week begins. So also from the pulpit, we should be aware that we not use words that the world uses to promote their agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be uh, very discerning in that respect. Right, yeah. Huh, that's interesting. I, uh, yeah, I guess the, the preaching is really the, the first line, line of defense, I want to say, but it is the first, um, or the, you know, I guess the thing that we stand on. If, if you lose that preaching in the worship service, it doesn't really matter what else you have. You just don't have a worship service, essentially. Like, we can all get together and sing and pray and, and be together. But if we're not being edified properly and, and you know, obviously, you know, with a Reformed the theology, then it's, uh, yeah, we might as well not show up on the first day of the week. So. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. So yeah, I guess this is like, it's kind of a false, a false dichotomy that we've kind of set up in our minds that it's, it's, it's interesting. I haven't heard, I haven't heard a lot of that, that uh, we should, we shouldn't necessarily think about, you know, although you hear that not, don't think about us versus them, but don't even think about it like that. Like, we are a body and people are more than welcome to join. It's, uh, we are the beginning of the new mankind. Right? Uh, a Christian body is part of the new humanity that Christ is raising up. And everybody's invited to join. But they have to realize it is a new humanity. The rules are different. Hmm. Yeah, right. Interesting. Yeah, it's. Do we. You think we think about. You think we think about how to do church too much these days? Now, what do you mean by that question? Well, I'm just thinking, like, w there's a lot of discussion about how do we, like, from the minute you walk in, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What, who's talking to who? And we have this guy at the door, and that's a guy's an usher, and they, you know, then we have the, the young people need to be involved, so get them doing that. And, like, 
have we have we fallen into something where we're we're worried too much about what our worship service looks like and less worried about what the worship service is or what the preaching is bringing us? Well, I I can I, I, I see now where you're heading. Yeah, now we read in bulletins about we have a team for this, a team for that, a team for this, a team for that. And I think it's very good that we get as many people involved in church life in volunteer position, audiovisual team, the welcoming team, the uh, small groups team. I think those are good developments. We we people have to be active in 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 the body and and give of their gifts. As long as the focus stays on the solidity of the preaching and the focus stays on God in worship and not on ourselves or our talents, I think there's no there's no problem. I prefer the organ, but if there's going to be a piano with a violin, that's fine with me too. I mean, it's accompaniment. Uh, but if congregational singing were to be replaced by a choir, then I would have objections because it's the congregation that's supposed to be responding uh, in song. Right. So it all depends. But it, it it is good, I think. It is a good trend that more people are getting actively involved in facets of church life where this was previously not the case. And of course, part of it is technological advance. So now we have audiovisual teams who have to take care of all sorts of electronics, live streaming and so on. Right. And it provides work for people who have those talents. They can use them for the church and, and that's great. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess we've seen a, a, just a, a, I guess not really a push, but yeah, like having having all these teams, I guess we've kind of, for, we've. it seems like, I, I think we, it seems like we've been formalizing a lot of what we've been doing into, okay, well, someone's been worried about how to accompany the worship service. Well, let's make a team about it. And then we'll have, uh, you know, they'll, you know, they'll report to these people. And, and it just seems like, uh, yeah, we've, we've done a lot to like, I mean, obviously probably streamline a bit of the work and stuff like that, but it seems to be more, uh, I don't know if it's getting away from a passion, like to just do it because we're, we're you know, that's what we do as a church. Um, so I, I recently moved from Hamilton, which is a big congregation, to, to Calgary, which is a really small or fairly small variation. So I see the difference. I just see the, the the differences now because, I mean, in Hamilton, you just you just need more structure and more. This is how we do things, and it was you know we loved our time there, and I would never yeah I, I it's not a problem. I just see that in a in a congregation that's smaller, people are just doing stuff, and there's no like oh what. Don't you have a committee for that? Like, yeah, that person is the committee for that. Like, it's just. Uh... Well, one 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 concern I do have is that committees can sometimes exceed their mandate. For example, if you have a music committee, the temptation is, we've got to have work to do. Right. So, you can run into a situation where the music committee says we'll determine the liturgy for the coming Sunday, and then I say to myself, No, you won't. I think that's the task of the minister because he's the one that's presenting the message. But in non-Canadian Reformed churches, you have the phenomenon of music committees determining the entire liturgy and the pastor just has to sort of fit himself into that. Right. Yeah. And so that's the kind of danger we need to avoid. Yeah, I think if something like the term worship team just seems to yeah. be, yeah, like a, yeah, well, we don't come here for a worship team. 
we come here for the preaching. The liturgy yeah. is what it is. It doesn't, it's not something that we play with weekly to try to get, you know, whatever. We don't, not to get up, make ourselves feel better or to bring more people in. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question because it's, it's not like any unchurched person's ever seen the liturgy to begin with. So it's not like, uh, any liturgy is going to be a welcome site, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, well, that's it's been good. Uh, thanks for thanks for coming on. Is there anything else that uh, you know we may have missed about uh, about preaching, about sermons, or uh, the minister's work? Oh, a lot more could be said, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, good, <laughs> good. <laughs> I uh, appreciate appreciate your wisdom and uh, walking us through some of this, and I'm sure I'll. Uh, We'll be expanding on a little bit of this discussion later on later episodes. So, thank you very much, Dr. Van Dam. It's been uh, well. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings on your work. All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback and we'd love to hear it please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com if you want to find us online or social media we've got a lot of great content there just search reformed real talk and we should come right up this show is created and produced by myself lucas holtfluer and tyler vanderwood and our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is mariah tamiga so we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well that's all for now folks thanks for watching or listening and we'll catch you next time